How many of you have had a part in a Christmas pageant? Willie, what were you? A what? Of course, typecast. Okay, anybody else? Who else? Yeah, Leon? You were the shepherd. Anybody else? Yeah, Brad? You were a tree? <laughs> Lily? Sheep, okay. All right, anybody else want to share? Yeah, Terry? A lady in the crowd. I think it was called lady number one in the crowd, lady number two in the crowd. Rob? Oh, wise man. What a wise guy he is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll never forget the year that the Altadena Children's Center, which is right up here in the north of our property, had a Christmas pageant one year where the four-year-old Jewish girl insisted that she wanted to be baby Jesus. So, of course, uh, her mom was consulted, and her mom thought that was hysterically funny. So she allowed her to be baby Jesus. And during the program, this toddler sat up in the manger and waved to the whole crowd. So she apparently knew instinctively where the center of Christmas was, where the spotlight was. Um, if you're shyer and you don't want to have a central role part or a speaking part, many of you have mentioned the tree really sticks out in my mind, uh, a non-speaking part. Uh, I've seen cows and sheep at the pageants, but what about the innkeeper? The innkeeper doesn't say a word, he just shakes his head and gestures no. That's all the innkeeper has to do. Let's refresh our memories and in your mind, you can picture and visualize the Christmas pageant, which children all over the world have reenacted every Christmas. And we're not going to read the whole birth story. We're going to have to leave out the angels and the shepherds and the wise men, but we are going to visualize the central focal point of our Christmas pa pageant. And notice the innkeeper. Okay, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time had come for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see there, the innkeeper is silent. There are no words attributed to him, probably because there was no innkeeper. I'm sad to tell you this. Not the way at least it was portrayed by children's pageants. There was no innkeeper because there was no inn in the way that we would understand that word. There was no hotel, no motel, no hostel, no place of business where a traveler would pay 
for a night's worth of lodging. Instead, the highest value in Middle Eastern societies in that day was placed on hospitality. And any traveler coming to Bethlehem would have been offered a place to stay in someone's home. Can you imagine if in our culture we had that value? Ooh, it's very different. Hospitality is such a high value that the Talmud says welcoming guests is greater than welcoming the divine presence, the Shekinah or Shekinah. Now, because of the swell of people returning to Bethlehem for, for registering in the census, the, the, the prime rooms, the ones away from the animals, the ones probably on the second floor most likely would go to the elders the elder visitors. Mary and Joseph would have been housed on the first floor where it was common to bring the livestock in at night so as to keep them safe. Or it could have been a little stable attached to a house where the livestock was brought in at night. Most definitely Jesus was born in a place that housed animals. The other part of hospitality that the people of Bethlehem would have supplied is knowledgeable and experienced women to help Mary with childbirth. No woman in that culture would ever have to undergo childbirth alone, even if she was far from her own community. So Mary most likely did have a midwife and other helpers during her laboring time. So there was no inn, but there was a manger, a trough where animals fed. It was probably made of stone, not wood, like we imagine. Uh, the manger is mentioned three times in Luke, so we know for a fact that it was there. Uh, and a child in the manger was specifically the, signs that, the sign that the angels gave the shepherd to go look for. We're in a sermon series entitled Jesus Through the Eyes Of, and I wanted to look at Jesus through the eyes of the innkeeper. That was my idea. For obviously the innkeeper did not see Jesus and his parents in any way as special people. And the rejection of this innkeeper would have many parallels in the rest of Jesus's uh, life. For many people didn't see the value of Jesus, except that there really was no innkeeper. So there went that sermon. It's amazing how many sermons end up in the garbage heap because the Bible will not support what I wanna say. But what we do know about Jesus is that he was an internally displaced person at the time of his birth. The Roman census, which was for the, for the purpose of taxation, for the purpose of subjugation, turned life upside down for all of Israel as the Israelites were forced to return to their ancestral homes. A great migration, a mass movement of people occurred during the time of Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph had plenty of company who were also alongside of them trekking to the places of their ancestors. They had a 70-mile trek to Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph did, and along the way they had company who was wondering, where am I going to stay once I get there? They had a lot of company and people who were knocking at the door of distant relatives, which is the first place you went to get shelter when you arrived in your hometown. So, so today, instead of the innkeeper, we're looking at Jesus through the eyes of displaced people, the people who don't belong. 
it's crystal clear in the account of his birth that Jesus was one of them, those people, not one of us. And the thems, the those people, generally know who they are because they have a keen sense of not belonging. They aren't treated as if they belong by people around them, and they don't feel as if they belong. Them and those are often invisible people to those to the us group who is hurrying by, who is on important uh, errands, things to do, who don't like the disruption or the interruption. The them and those are inconvenient people to have around. They make trouble just by being there. They stir up, ruffle up the water, waters. They create disturbance. And perhaps all of us might have straddled that line between them and us, teetering on one side or the other depending on the circumstances or the different seasons of life. Now, this would never happen in Jesus' culture where elders were highly respected, but elders in our culture actually have to say to the youngers, don't rush me. Got to get my feet straight before I can walk. Takes longer to do things when you're older. They have to remind the people around them to be patient and to take their time. And elders might feel like them and those in our busy society, in our fast and instant gratification culture. I went to a concert a week ago, and there were signs all over for VIPs. Different preferred parking, different closer doors to make your entrance, different and better seats. And you bet that I noticed when I went downstairs to the restroom that there was a whole reception laid out in the, in the uh, lobby down there with food and drink uh, away from the crowds, cordoned off signs saying VIPs only. And I kept trying to announce that my group, we were VIPs to everyone I came to. And they would be forced to say, oh, well, that's obvious. I can see that your group is a VIP group. You're very important people, but you're not this kind of important people to go in here. There's different access and different privileges for the in-group. And that night, we were not the in-group. We enjoyed ourselves anyway. But Women feel like them and those in traditionally male spaces. Students of color feel like them and those in almost all predominantly white classes. Unhoused people feel like them and those to a public which sweeps by them without making eye contact. Kids and youth can feel like them and those when they are not listened to. Migrants can feel like them and those when they don't know the culture well or speak with an accent. The LGBTQ plus community has often been unwelcomed and made to feel other. So all of these subgroups, pockets of the them and those are sprinkled throughout our society. And what about the uh, millions of displaced people in our world, the refugees who have lost everything due to violence, war, natural disasters, poverty? Jesus was born in poverty. If the town of Bethlehem only knew who Jesus was, he'd have had a better start. But he was easy to miss. 
Nobody passing by, looking in the doorway, would have even noticed the baby nestled in that trough, in that manger. The shepherds had, be, had to be told by divine intervention, by a living, speaking, shining angel of heaven to go look in that manger. How many babies were put in the manger that night? Zero, none others, only Jesus. That's why it was a sign from heaven to them. The manger, the impoverished condition of Jesus' birth was a sign. And it was no accident. That humble birth was no accident. We know this for many, many reasons, but the one I want to highlight today is that just as he started his life as an outsider, Jesus' public ministry was as an outsider also. Now, during the 30 years when he was growing up and becoming an adult and all of that, those years of Jesus' life, he, he likely apprenticed with his father, a carpenter. He lived in whatever community his parents settled in. After his birth, they had to actually, they were displaced again, this time through the violence of King Herod, and became refugees in a different country. They fled to Egypt until an angel told them to go back, and then they went back to Nazareth. So Jesus' family moved around during the beginning years quite a bit on him. And probably Jesus blended really well for those three decades. But once he started his ministry, he made it clear that he loved sinners. You know how uncomfortable sinners are to be around? He made it clear that he was there for the outcasts, that he reached out to the poor. And he trained his criticism on the re religious elite in power. He made insiders very, very nervous. He pushed them up between a rock and a hard place with his questions, with his insights, to the point where they finally killed him. So today I just want to acknowledge that being a them is really uncomfortable. It's an un uncomfortable space to be. It's angering. It's anxiety-producing. It's depressing. It feels like a bad place to be. But the Christian proclamation of good news is that Jesus not only started as an outsider, but he came for outsiders. And we meet the real Jesus when we meet the humble Jesus. It's not so much that we meet Jesus there at the manger, but more so that the Jesus born in a manger comes to us, that Jesus meets us at the point of poverty. Jesus meets us at the point of suffering and loss, at the point of pain and discomfort. Jesus meets us on the outside. In fact, I'm going to say it even more radically that we don't know Jesus until we have met him on the outside. I'm saying we can't know Jesus only from an insider perspective from the places of power and privilege. Is that true? Now think about it carefully because, you know, you're in a Baptist church, you can talk back to the preacher. Maybe not during the sermon. Tell me afterwards. Is that true? I'm saying that we can't know Jesus until we ourselves are outsiders. We, we ourselves that are, are at a point of great disadvantage when we ourselves experience great poverty, a poverty materially, a poverty emotionally, a poverty of spirit. We can't meet the real Jesus until we're horrifyingly aware of our own sin 
and that we're uncomfortable being in the presence of the sinner who is me. That we can't be meet the real Jesus until we have a deep and uncontrollable need of him, until we despair of being good enough to be in a relationship with him, until our goodness becomes like rags and our privilege crumbles to dust. The humble Jesus who was born with nothing comes to us when we have nothing. I was reading an article entitled, To Reach Unsaved Christians, Unsaved Christians, To Reach Unsaved Christians, First Help Them to Get Lost. And two newly minted pastors, fresh from graduating seminar, seminary, called to their first church were comparing notes. And one had been called church, to church in that great wasteland, California. The other had been called to the Bible Belt. And the first, going to a place where there were a lot of atheists and agnostics who knew that they were not Christians, that was his area. But the second was going to a place where everyone thought they were Christians and they believed in God and they attend church and they do not believe that their own sin separated them from God. They don't take their own sinfulness seriously. They don't need the Jesus that they claim to believe in except for him to take the wheel in a moment of crisis. And this pastor to the Bible Belt described those people as cultural Christians, almost harder to reach than the agnostics and the atheists. Pharisees, Christians, they're the ultimate insiders. These are the people who are familiar with the sanctuary. We've been there many times. We've crawled under the pews when we were kids. We've taken communion every time it's offered. We're familiar with prayer. We've prayed many times. We are highly favored of God, and we know it. Christians who need saving, Pharisees who need God. The danger is that our protected status comes with the great possibility, even the great probability, that we will miss the baby in the manger because we're not looking for him there, because we think he belongs on a throne, not a manger. And Jesus resisted the throne his whole earthly life, preferring the humble folk instead. It's easy to say no room to Jesus. It might be easier now than back in his day because we have digital distractions we have packed schedules, we have competing priorities. We are much less hospitable people than those Middle Eastern people in Jesus' day, both literally and also metaphorically. But at Christmas, and especially at Christmas, it's an advantage to be a displaced person instead and to have the eyes to see Jesus as Savior of the world and a Savior that I need right now in my life. Adele did not know that she was writing a Christmas carol when she wrote her song, Hello. Hello, it's me, she sings. Hello, can you hear me? She's singing as an outsider. There's such a difference between us and a million miles. You know the song? And then comes, 
hello from the other side. The other side. And then later on in the song, it says, hello from the outside. She uses both of those words in the song. Adele is calling from the outside. If it was a true Christmas carol, she would be on the phone calling, or she would be knocking on the door, calling, calling that person. And then she would turn slightly, and right there with her, knee-deep in snow, would be Jesus, saying, I know how you feel on the outside. I, I know all about knocking to get in and doors closed against you. And Adele would say, it's, it's in her song, check it, I'm sorry for breaking your heart. I'm sorry for everything that I've done. She would say, they say that time's supposed to heal you, but I ain't done much healing. She's been thinking, or Adele has, she's been thinking and she has regrets. Now at the moment you're doing something wrong, you don't have a, a single regret doing it. But then later on, and sometimes years later it takes you, you start thinking about those things that you have done. And you want to take it back. You'd want to change it. But instill, instead you're left with regrets. I ain't done much healing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Adele says. And Jesus, who's right there on the outside, by her side says, your sins are forgiven. Now those lyrics are in the Bible, look them up. Jesus said it to a lot of people who are here, who are hurting. And Jesus says to our Adele, I can see that you're worn and weary. Come to me, take my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. And Jesus says, follow me. That's good news to an outsider, news of great joy. Today we lit the third candle, the joy candle, and the them and those experience a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, but there is joy scattershot throughout that pain, throughout that suffering. Joy is the baby who began his life in the humblest of circumstances, who refused all the power and the wealth that the devil held out to him, but walked the path of suffering, instead the joy of salvation. The effect of good news will absolutely be joy to all people. And at Christmas, joy is found in Jesus. Not joy in family, because some, sometimes that's a place of hurt. Not everybody has that. Not joy in presents, because that joy is fleeting at best. Not joy in shopping, because we don't have untold wealth here. And uh, the debt will weigh heavy as soon as we start to try to pay off those credit cards. We have many ways of getting joy, but all of them wax and wane. And so we come to Bethlehem, to a trough for animal feed, to a baby wrapped and nestled there. And we find to our surprise, to our delight, we find lasting, everlasting joy in Jesus. Bow your heads with me. We want to find our joy in you, Jesus. So we come to you humbly. 
we come to you with nothing really to be able to give to you that would compare to what you give to us. And we come asking that you would make that joy through the Holy Spirit leap in our hearts at the sound of your name, that joy through your Holy Spirit that you gave to Elizabeth, that you gave to those old people, Anna and Simeon, that you gave to the shepherds when they actually found you in the manger, we ask that you would give us that joy as we turn to you. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs>